Hello everyone. I read a fascinating article back in August last year about the true crime boom. Or to put it another way, a morbid fascination in true crime stories and documentaries on television and streaming sites. What Sarah Weinman, the author of the article, wanted to find out was what real forensic scientists thought about this boom. What their perception of this insatiable interest of ours was. I say as, that's obviously me presuming that those listening to this podcast watch these kind of things. Well, I'll start out now by saying that I love them. From CSI, Netflix's hit Making Murderer, True Detective, Reasonable Doubts, that's a really good one. Born to Kill, Most Evil, I think it's clear that I watch too much television. Perhaps that needs readdressing in a separate podcast. So what do those working in forensics actually think? Well, the author asked Christy Sekadat, manager of the Trace Evidence Unit Lab for the Michigan State Police, friend and old classmate. And she said that her and her colleagues try to avoid watching or listening to true crime programmes. The forensic scientists she talked to tended to shy away from current true crime programming, in part because they had to devote their time to their actual work. I think that's fair enough. I don't think anyone can argue with that. Having said that, she does go on to say that she did listen to every episode of Serial. For those listening who aren't sure what Serial is, I'll just briefly explain. Adnad Saeed's name is well known worldwide off the back of true crime podcast Serial, hosted by journalist uh, Sarah Koenig and first launched in 2014. It's been widely lauded as one of the most popular podcasts of all time. It dominated the number one spot for iTunes, on iTunes rather, for over three months, and was breaking the record as the fastest podcast ever to reach five million downloads. Serial's first 12 episodes were dedicated to investigating the 1999 murder of 18-year-old high school student Heyman Lee. Her body was discovered in Leakin Park in Baltimore, Maryland. A few weeks later, her ex-boyfriend, Adnab Masood Saeed, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. In the article, uh, Christy Sekadat suggests that she, and most likely everyone else who listened to the serial podcast, aren't just thinking about the case at hand, but about avenues and evidence not explored. They're thinking about post-convictions or persons coming up again for retrial. This cultural shift in the way we think about crimes as a result of post-serial true crime programming, uh, Sekadat explained, is that it, and I quote, can stifle the work that you're doing as a bench-level analyst. You start thinking, what might I get later? Analyse 10 years down the road. What if I look at the evidence again with new information? These questions can keep you from looking at just what you have right now. So here's the important questions. Do shows like CSI have a negative influence on people's interpretation of the criminal justice system and on forensic science practices? Well, let's look at the definition of the CSI effect according to NOLO, uh, that's N-O-L-O, the online law dictionary. So it's described as being a phenomenon reported by prosecutors who claim that television shows based on scientific crime solving have made actual jurors reluctant to vote to convict when, as is typically true, forensic evidence is neither necessary or available. Studies have shown that jurors are demanding more evidence in criminal trials. The CSI effect has raised the standard of proof for prosecutors. 
Viewers now put a lower value on circumstantial evidence and greater demand for physical proof, and perhaps most notable, there's been a sharp increase in numbers of people seeking careers in forensic science. Are these all positive or negative outcomes? Well, that's for you to decide. I would argue that these are incredibly positive. Demanding better quality evidence in a trial surely can't be a bad thing. But the perception that people have of how you get that evidence is perhaps the main issue here. So how do these television shows stack up? As an avid fan, let me talk you through some common misconceptions. Fingerprints are everywhere. That's not true. With latent prints, it very much depends on the surface that the print is found on. If you're interested, I have recorded a separate podcast specifically on fingerprinting and its use in forensic investigation. TV suggests that it takes mere minutes to extract and process DNA samples. That's wrong. Yes, with some salt, washing up liquid, ethanol and a strawberry, you can extract DNA very easily. That's a little experiment that I do in school when teaching this topic. But that's a very crude way of doing things. To extract human DNA and process it correctly, analysing fragments using gel electrophoresis is not something you can do in five minutes. In the land of TV, investigators don't have to wait for warrants with little tedious paperwork to complete. And it always seems that one person does many different jobs in the investigation. Neither of these are true. There's paperwork involved in everything you do. As a teacher, I'll be the first to tell you that. But the idea that one person, particularly in the show CSI, does everything from investigating the scene of the crime to collection of evidence to processing that evidence, and then usually the big reveal and arrest at the end, is just wrong. As with most professions, there's a big multidisciplinary team at work. No one person has the mammoth task of investigating and solving the entire thing. Characters often use the term match to describe a definitive relationship between pieces of evidence. Let's clear this up now. That isn't possible. No one can be 100% certain of a definitive match. If we really wanted to, we could talk about whether there is a greater or less than 5% probability of results being due to chance and new statistical analyses to draw conclusions. But I don't think a TV show or podcast about that would be particularly engrossing. Apologies to any uh, stats fans that are listening. So, what does existing research tell us about people's perception of forensic science? In a study conducted by the Field Research Corporation, DNA was considered to be the most reliable at 89.5%, with fingerprints closely behind at 78.8%, medical expert testimony then followed at 30.3%, Police testimony at 23.3, which is interesting. Victim testimony only at 21.2% and eyewitness testimony at 21.2% following behind. The respondents found all forms of science-based, i.e. I'm talking about DNA and fingerprints, evidence to be more reliable than victim, police and eyewitness testimony. Interestingly, in this one particular cohort they used for the study, they found that people who watched three or more hours of crime shows a week were less likely to convict in rape or murder cases without scientific evidence. The greater the number of hours spent watching crime and justice programmes, the more reliable the respondents found these forms of evidence. And crime show uh, viewing habits directly affected a respondent's belief about their willingness to convict 
without scientific evidence. The issue is, however, that it's, it's more than just the perception problem. The CSI effect has been cited as a reason why today's forensic professionals are ill-prepared and inadequately trained. This has had devastating consequences and led directly to wrongful convictions, which is shocking. Back in 2009, the BBC published an article entitled CSI Factor Hurting Crime Cases. Leading judge Lord Justice Leveson suggested that fictional crime series like CSI were making real trials much more difficult. And he goes on to say that witnesses were reluctant to come forward because of the mistaken belief that forensic and expert evidence was paramount. Speaking at a conference of expert witnesses in London, the judge also hinted that some experts were exaggerating their evidence or straying into subjects in which they did not have any specialist knowledge. In 2008, famous case Barry George was cleared of murdering the BBC TV presenter Jill Dando when the Old Bailey ruled that the original trial had put too much weight on ballistic analysis. That's to do, so that's uh, bullets from a gun. Solicitor Sally Clark was eventually cleared of murdering two of her children after it emerged that an expert witness had wrongly interpreted statistics on unexplained childhood deaths. I'd like to look in more detail now at these so-called wrongful convictions or miscarriages of justice. There are no doubt convictions that have been overturned as a result of lack of evidence, new evidence, police corruption, changes in witness, well, witness testimony, apologies. But I want to focus on those brought about from bad science. I want to pay particular attention to those cases where there has been a poor understanding of the forensic evidence. And not just in terms of its collection, but its analysis too. The Innocence Project, which I'd, I'd like to focus on, is a non-profit legal organisation that's committed to exonerating wrongly convicted people through the use of DNA testing and to reforming the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. Now, the Innocence Project was founded in about 1992 by Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield. Their work has led to the freeing of more than 350 wrongfully convicted people based on DNA including 20 who spent time on death row. And the finding of around now, I think this is incredible, of around 150 real perpetrators. The Innocence Project defines unvalidated or improper forensic science as, and this is taken directly from their own website, the use of forensic disciplines or techniques that have not been tested to establish their validity and reliability, testimony about forensic evidence that presents inaccurate statistics, give statements of probability or frequency, whether numerical or non-numerical, in the absence of valid empirical data, interprets non-probative evidence as inculpatory, or concludes or suggests that evidence is uniquely connected to the defendant without empirical data to support such testimony, and finally, misconduct either by fabricating inculpatory data or failing to disclose exculpatory data. So with that in mind, let's talk about some wrongful convictions involving unvalidated or improper forensic science that were later overturned through DNA testing. Ray Crone spent 10 years in prison for kidnapping and murder. Unvalidated bite mark analysis helped seal his fate. 
Investigators relied on bite marks on the victim's breast and neck. Upon hearing that the victim had told a friend that a regular customer named Ray Crone was uh, to help her close up the bar the previous night, police asked Crone to make a styrofoam impression of his teeth for comparison. On December uh, was the 31st, 1991, Crone was arrested and charged with murder, kidnapping and sexual assault. An analyst, uh, analyst testified that he was certain that Crone's teeth caused bite marks on the victim and that it was a very good match. That's taken directly from the notes. He went on to say that bite mark comparison has all the veracity, all the strength that a fingerprint would have. The prosecution, however, failed to disclose that an FBI expert had examined the bite marks and said that they weren't from Crone. That's staggering. Ten years in prison and that wasn't revealed. Gene Bibbins spent 15 and a half years in prison for serious assault. In June 1986, a young teenager was attacked in her aunt's apartment. She'd been asleep when the assailant had entered the room, climbed on top of her and threatened her with a knife. The perpetrator stole a radio from the room before escaping out of the window. The victim reported the crime to her aunt, who contacted the police. Now, Bibbins, who lived in a different building in the same apartment complex, was arrested less than an hour later. An analyst, apologies, struggling saying that word, an analyst testified that lab analysis of fingerprints from the crime scene were inconclusive and that the analyst had checked those findings with the state crime lab, which had reached the same conclusion. In fact, Bibbins was excluded as the source of the fingerprints, which was in a state crime lab report, yet incorrect fingerprint analysis meant that he would serve nearly 16 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And finally, just another example, let's talk about William Dillon, served 27 years for murder. The state had introduced testimony from a dog handler that connected Dillon to the crime scene. So this is an American case. Authorities had hired John Preston, a purported expert in handling scent tracking dogs. Eight days after the crime, Preston and his dog, Harris, conducted two tests, which he said linked the t-shirt to the crime scene and Dylan to the t-shirt. In the second test, a paper lineup, which allegedly linked Dylan to the t-shirt, Preston allowed his dog to sniff the t-shirt and then pieces of paper, including one that Dylan had touched. Preston said the dog had selected Dylan's paper. Now, we all know about the incredible sense of smell that a dog has, but this is unvalidated science. Science that put a man behind bars, which DNA evidence ultimately then helped to release. I started this podcast talking about Sarah Weinman's article, and I'd like to finish by looking at another article written exactly one year before that in 2017. The headline read, DNA in the dock. How flawed techniques send innocent people to prison. Now, many juries believe crime scene DNA evidence is watertight, but this is far from the case. As forensic technology gets ever more sophisticated, experts are only just realising how difficult interpreting the evidence can be. A groundbreaking study by Itiel Dror, a cognitive neuroscientist at University College London, and Greg Hampikin, 
a biology and criminal justice professor at Boy State University, illustrated exactly how subjective the reading of complex mixtures can be. Draw and Hampikian obtained paperwork from a 2002 Georgia rape trial that hinged on DNA typing. The main evidence implicating the defendant was the accusation of a co-defendant who was testifying in exchange for a reduced sentence. Two forensic scientists had concluded that the defendant could not be excluded as a contributor to the mixture of sperm from inside the victim, meaning his DNA was a possible match. The defendant was found guilty. Draw and Hampikian gave the DNA evidence to 17 lab technicians for examination, withholding context about the case to ensure that there were no uh, bias in the results, so to obtain completely unbiased uh, results. All of the techs were experienced with an average of at least nine years in the field. Draw and Hampikian asked them to determine whether the mixture included DNA from that defendant. The results were then made public. Only one of the 17 lab technicians concurred that the defendant could not be excluded as a contributor. 12 told Draw and Hampikian that the DNA was exclusionary and that it wouldn't be from him. And four said that it was totally inconclusive. In other words, had any one of those 16 scientists been responsible for the original DNA analysis, the rape trial could have played out in a radically different way. If we start to scrutinise this kind of evidence, where does it end? Perhaps people released through DNA testing really shouldn't have been. I mean, think about all the paternity tests conducted using DNA testing. What if they were wrongly interpreted? It's definitely food for thought. And on that note, I'd like to thank everyone for listening.